Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and your host of Give Me Strength. What makes a strong person to you? Could it be the kilograms on your deadlift, the miles you're able to run, or is it as simple as saying how you feel, an inner feeling of strength that's there regardless of your fitness abilities? Each week, I'll be looking into this concept, asking extraordinary women about their ever-evolving relationship with exercise and how their experiences have shaped who they are today. Together, we'll discuss the positives of living a stronger life, both physically and mentally, in the hope that we can inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. This week's guest is the incredible author, journalist, mental health campaigner and two-time marathon running superstar, Bryony Gordon. Having initially found Bryony through her incredible Mad World podcast, which got me through my own long training runs for my half marathon, I found her approach to talking about mental health so refreshingly honest and real that I knew I wanted to have the opportunity to meet her one day. And here we are. <laughs> Bryony is now publishing her fourth book, You've Got This, which is something I wish I'd read when I was younger and is a book aimed at teenage girls as the ultimate guide to growing up happy. How are you today, Bryony? How am I? Um, whew, I must answer this question honestly, as it's like the first question I always do on, on like, your podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love it because you always say, how are you really? And I think it's a really important question. Well, it was. It, I only came up with it like in my first ever podcast recording, which was with Prince Harry. Mad. <laughs> As you do. As you do. And I was like, how are you? But how are you really? Like, dude, how are you really? And um, it, and then he told me. And he was really honest as well, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. I was like, I hope this is recording. <laughs> um, sorry, I've just eaten an eclair, which is very healthy, isn't it? And it's sort of slightly stuck in like, the tongue. And the, it, they are the worst. And you know, and it makes you a bit like yippy and you're like... <gasps> And yeah. I'm now going to like burp on your podcast. At the back of your throat. It's okay. Everything is welcome here. Um, <laughs> we are accepting of all, clagginess and all. Anyways, yeah, I'm claggy. <laughs> in answer to that question, I'm claggy and I'm a bit ma- I'm actually, I'm feeling a bit manic. Okay. I've probably drank too much coffee. Mm-hmm. And my head's like a pie chart that's mm-hmm. all kind of like divided up into lots of different segments. Half of my brain's on book promo, but a quarter of my brain's on my other job, which is writing for a newspaper, The Telegraph. I just interviewed Andy Murray, so I just had to file that. And then there's like, a, my brain is also on things like the six-year-old child mm. that I gave birth to. You wear to. lots of different hats, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> so... Um, it's actually quite nice to have that question asked to me. Okay. And to be able to just sit still for a moment and go, hmm, how am I? But also to know that we live in a world now where actually I feel like we're becoming more accepting of the fact that if you say, how are you really? Mm. There is often a, there's someone or there's a safe space in which you can actually be honest 
and say, yeah. you know, because so often we go, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. And we're so used to hearing that answer that if someone answers differently and says, well, actually, you know, I've got this going on. I'm it's really like, manic. Hold up, no, shh, be yeah. quiet. I don't want. I <laughs> yeah. don't want to. I don't really want to know how you are. I'm just being polite. Yeah. I'm not interested in how you are. I'm. You know, it's that thing. Like, don't tell me. Mm. Don't tell me the truth. It's, it's definitely something we need to do more. We need to probe more. So, I wanted to start this podcast by asking about childhood Bryony. So, you've written a book that is directly aimed at teenage girls, which I think is really interesting. And it's like I said, it's a book I wish I had read when I was younger, and a lot I could relate to. What was this time? like for you growing up and was it your own experiences that motivated you to write a book for girls this age you know that question people always ask us when we're kids like what do you want to be when you grow up and I had like a million answers to that question I wanted to be like an Arsenal footballer a lawyer a unicorn but at the heart of it all was I wanted to be a little bit less like me I had a really lovely childhood Mm. I had like grow up in a nice house and had a door a Labrador and um, a Volvo I mean obviously I didn't drive the Volvo my parents did and we (laughs) you know and we went on holiday course to Cornwall and I had a lovely sister and brother and you know nothing bad ever happened in my life but I always felt slight you know like I've, I've also come to realize that nothing bad has to have happened in your life for you to experience mental illness no. like it's like newsflash um and I in fact for most people that's the case yeah. and I think that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from is they're like but I've got no reason to feel but this also, way children I think one of the great things about children is they have completely wild imaginations so when we're kids we may perceive things that are quite normal mm. in a frightening way we may be overly sensitive to them mm. think that we are getting in people's way and we carry that stuff through to adulthood so you know you don't have to have had an awful childhood to have your head shaped in a slightly weird way mm-hmm. And um, I, as a child, was I was very frightened. Like most of my life until recently has been um, the prevailing emotion has probably been fear. Sounds mm. like, oh, great, I can't wait to listen to this woman. <laughs> I kind of just wanted to slither into someone else's skin. You know, I didn't want to be me, really. That was at the heart of my all my answers to that question. Who do you want? What do you want to be when you grow up? So, yeah, I was a I was a I was an intensely I was quite shy, which mm. people find really hard to believe because I'm a gobby shite. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't call myself a gob shite. But I'm quite, you know... Loud and proud. Loud and proud. <laughs> this sounds so sad to say, but I don't have any happy memories of childhood. Really? <laughs> no, not really. No, I have some. Like, I have, you know, but I don't... I just remember being scared the whole time. I, I had... When I was 12, I developed really crippling obsessive compulsive disorder i mean all obsessive compulsive disorder is crippling mm. um and but i didn't know that's what it was because if anyone spoke about ocd it was as like i don't know like someone was really organized and people didn't really speak about it that much anyway at the mm. time i had this one this type of ocd called pure o which I describe OCD as your brain refusing to acknowledge what the, uh, your eye can see. So be it that your hands are clean or that the door is locked or that the oven is off or your hair straighteners are off. Mm. Or, But it can also be thoughts. So, you know, a lot of people who have my kind of OCD, pure O, because it's all about intrusive thoughts, they worry that the speed bump they've gone over is actually a child and they go back and check and check and check and check. And my thoughts are things like, you know, I talk about thoughts. We all have thousands of thoughts every day. We are not all of our thoughts. And if we were, we would be completely bonkers. And we all have those intrusive thoughts like, you know, someone holds hands you their baby. And you're like, what if I just threw this baby on the floor, you know? And 
the thing is, is that most people, people that don't have OCD, go, well, that's obviously ridiculous. I'm not going to throw this baby on the floor. This is the roundedness of my brain. And they just dismiss it. But someone mm. with um, pure O can't dismiss the thoughts. Mm. And they, they ruminate on them to check that they are not their thoughts. And mm. so it can get pretty dark. And so from a young age, I had a type of OCD that made me think I was a serial killing paedophile. It's fun. Yeah. So I was a really scared child. I was constantly kind of like, I thought there was a long period where I thought I was going to die of some sort of like terminal illness that I'd caught through germs. So I had that washing Mm. hand type Mm -hmm. of OCD and I kind of would wash my hands until they bled. And it got to the stage where I couldn't really leave the house and I couldn't touch my family. I was scared I was going to like pass them that illness. I like hid my toothbrush under my pillow. And I think back, it's really weird, like, because at the moment, because my life is, like, full of success and positivity Mm. and Mm. people are, like, celebrating me for these things that were really fucking awful, actually. Mm. And I get, sometimes when I really stop and, like, you asking that question and I just stop and breathe and go, (sighs) it's, like, quite emotional to think about the place that I was in and this book came from a place of real sadness and misery Mm. and... um desperation not to be me and I was so desperate not to be me that I kind of almost killed me you know I'm in recovery from alcoholism and addiction so (laughs) it's like a long answer to your question but my childhood was it was that it was like that but you know the thing I the thing the reason I do what I do Atlas is because the thing about all mental illness is that it's quite treatable, like mm. just as physical illnesses, mm. if you catch it mm. early. And mm-hmm. if you don't, it can kind of snowball. Mm-hmm. Just as if, if either of us were to get like a diagnosis of diabetes type 2 today and we start to take our medication and we we exercise, <laughs> you know, all of that, we'd probably live a long and healthy life. But yeah. if we didn't... Mm. And we carried on the behaviours that had led us to that situation, mm. or, or you know, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not apportioning blame here at all. But do you know what I mean? If we didn't, and we ate junk, and we didn't exercise, we might end up having our foot amputated. And it's the same with mental illness. Like my OCD, OCD is really treatable, but no one was talking about mental illness back in the early '90s, mm. and um, my parents didn't know what was going on because I was too scared to tell them because I thought I was going to be carted off mm-hmm. by the police mm-hmm. or. So it sort of snowballed and my I developed really bad coping mechanisms to deal with it, like alcohol, drugs. Mm. I and My hair fell out because I was so stressed and then I developed bulimia in a sort of weird yeah. way to try and get control back over my body. You talk in your book about how, and I'm talking about your third book, which is Eat, Drink, Run, which is what mm. I've just listened to. But in that book, you talk about how life was very, very chaotic for, for a period of time where mm. you were drinking heavily, you were deeply sort of depressed but you almost didn't didn't quite realize that that all of that was to mask the fact that you were actually deep down quite terrified of of who you are and what was going on yeah that must have been so hard to sort of deal with you know and at what point did you think to yourself at what point did you realize I think I might have a mental illness I don't think I ever thought of myself as being mentally ill until um until a couple of years ago like I I just thought I was a bad person. I thought I was, you know, I thought I was just faulty. And when I wrote for the first time about my type of OCD out of sort of desperation to meet other people like me, um, it was was about six years ago now. I It's really weird because my journey, I hate that phrase, but my journey has been very much like... 
I feel like I've I'm doing recovery like in real time. Yeah. So like I've discovered so many things about me. So I wrote about my OCD, and then I set up this thing called Mental Health Mate, which is like a walking and talking group for you know so people can get out of the house and you know and and meet other people like them without fear of judgment and there was all these kind of things that I was doing to to try and meet other people like me and make myself feel better and then you know from that you know I realized when I I started training for my first marathon because I thought oh that's gonna that's gonna make me healthy that's gonna stop me drinking so much you know I was like in my head Mm. and it didn't I mean I stopped drinking for the duration of running the actual Mm. marathon but I you know I was like boozing hard and I realized I was like this is this is like I could see and so through that and I'd I'd taken I'd taken it up not only because I wanted to kind of get healthy but also to 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 raise money for Heads Together which Mm. is the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and um, Prince Harry's mental health charity mm-hmm. and so that all came about through my mental health work and then through that I discovered that I had a problem with alcohol and then I got mm. sober and that mm. was two years ago and I keep learning all these things mm. you know about myself which is really great when you think about it like I'm 38 like mm. what am I going to learn next year and then the year after and all of those things if I'm lucky enough to still be around and when I came to writing this book you got this I was like I want to distill everything I've learned mm. since coming out about my mental health into a book it was almost like to give to younger me Mm. to go this is what I wish someone had given you Mm. when you were 12 but also to say to to other girls out there who may be starting to experience the same things I did this this is this is what Mm. you can do so you don't you don't have to go through what I did I went through it so you don't have to yeah I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting the first one is that you just said, you know, coming out about my mental health. Mm. I think that's a really interesting thing. You know, would we ever come out about a physical illness? Would we ever come mm. out and say, you know, oh, guys, I've broken my arm. And yeah. we still have that thing of having to come out, as you say, about suffering from mental illness. It's still seen as like, oh, God, wow. Oh, amazing. Whereas like what I think you've done and what's so great is you've normalised the conversation around it, you know. And I think that's so important, particularly like your, your first columns that you wrote there's Mm. a reason why they were picked up by people like Prince Harry and Prince William your new best mates (laughs) was because suddenly someone was talking about it in such a refreshingly honest and real way and I think there's so much in that and the second thing is the types of mental illness that you have you know I think things like stress and anxiety and depression are becoming a little bit more spoken about Mm. but things that are slightly more obscure that we have less of an understanding of so OCD borderline personality disorder bulimia those sort of things will i think we're still a little bit less willing to oh, yeah. to understand and to talk stigma. about yeah. and i think that's why what you're doing is great is because you're saying i've kind of got all of these things and this is how i'm managing them all and i think it's really great that someone's doing that but also i think i kept hearing that statistic that one in four statistic and and i was like but i don't these people are supposed to be all around me but i've never met anyone who identifies as mm. having the same thing as me and you know for me it's all been about finding people people who are like me and the more and my story when you kind of put it down and when you like crystallize it into black and white it does sound a little bit extreme but what I've discovered is it's not really mm. most people that I like the messages I get on my Instagram and, and in my email are from people who just don't like themselves they're not comfortable with themselves or people with the same kind of OCD as me or you know and it's it help it really helps me not to know that there are other people out there who have experienced the same kind of misery that I have, but that it, it makes me right-size my illness and see it for what it is, mm-hmm. which is just, just an illness. Mm-hmm. 
Talk to me about mental health, mates. This was your baby. I'm, when I read it in your book and that first day when you showed up and you almost cried at there being people there that had showed up to your tweet that you'd put out. Yeah. It was really inspiring. Talk to me about, about that initiative. Well, mental health, mates, came about three years ago and I was really unwell. I was having a really bad episode of obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, I was like out on the common near where I live doing a bit of running um, because that was like the only thing left. Like I Mm. tried everything, you know Mm. what I mean? I was like, this is, I've heard that running and exercise is good for you. I'm just going to, I'm going to go and do this. But while I was out there, I I, I remember seeing, you know, people playing football together, mums with their buggies together. And then also... I was listening to this podcast about this writer called Carson McCullers who wrote this book called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and she wrote exquisitely about loneliness and outsiders. And she suffered from alcoholism and she very tragically died of... Well, she died of alcoholism and she tried to kill Mm. herself on several Mm. occasions. But um, there was this archive audio footage of her and she... um, and she said, sometimes it feels like everyone is part of a we except for me. And it really struck me, mm. you know, and I was like, why is there no we for us? You know, because Carson McCullers was part of a mm. we, you know. And I was like, I want to go and find my we. <laughs> so I kind of got home and I was like, I'm going to I'm gonna tweet and like do a meetup for people with mental health issues. And, and my husband was like, what if a load of mad people turn up? And I'm like, that's the point. <laughs> and I just tweeted like, I'll be at this spot in this park at mm-hmm. this time. Come along if you also, you know, and it got retweeted a few times. Mm-hmm. And But I went along on the day and to my amazement, 20 people showed up. And now it's in... I mean, countless cities and towns across New the Zealand, UK, some abroad, yeah. And it's basically, it's a website, mentalhealthmates.co.uk, and you go on it and you download a walk pack and you can set up your own communities in your areas so that you can meet people like you mm. and get out of the house and do exercise, which we all know is really great for your mental health. Like, I always say that mental illness, what all mental illness has in common is that it lies to you. Mm. It tells you you're a freak and it tells you that you're alone and it tells you that no one is going to understand what you're going through. And that's mm. just not true. Mm. And the moment that you reveal that truth, that actually you're not alone, is the moment that you start on the path to recovery, you're not immediately cured, but you are, you know, you, you can only get better. The most important thing is to not isolate yourself if you're ill. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty, we've got ambassadors now and, um, you know, the people that came on that first walk have become friends. You know, one of them, Polly, created the walk pack and it's, it's a real kind of like, um, you know, it's simple, but it is effective. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. In your book, you talk about Jareth, and Jareth is (laughs) the name that you have given to that niggling voice well more than niggling but that voice in your head that Mm. tries to tell you that you're not good enough and that kind of overpowers you in those times of of self-doubt do you think we all to a certain extent have a Jareth inside of us and do you think that's something that's becoming increasingly common okay so here's the thing I don't think mental illness is becoming increasingly common I think Mm. it's always existed I think we're just talking about it more Mm -hmm. so when I hear about like an epidemic of mental ill health in young people I think young people have always been unwell but like we 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 have the means and the vocabulary to talk about it now Mm. as for Jareth (laughs) 
who I named after Jareth the Goblin King, who's his character in this film, Labyrinth. And it was David Bowie in, like, tight silver trousers, and he was, like, evil but ever so slightly alluring, which was kind of what I, how I kind of described my OCD. I think, you know, it, it helps me to be able to kind of isolate out that illness and give it a name because then I can kind of talk back and fight back to it. Mm. So I always say it's quite a good kind of technique if you are suffering from any kind of mental illness. But yeah, I, I really weird. it's really weird because only recently I went on this retreat called The Bridge, which is amazing. And it's all about kind of going back to your child. It's the kind of thing I would not have done in a month of Sundays a couple of years ago. And um, you do a lot of work on yourself and a lot of like intense therapy. And um, the person who ran it is an amazing woman called Donna Lancaster. She said to me, Jareth, is, you can let Jareth go now. He's Ooh. kept you alive and he's done what he needs to do. And it never occurred to me that OCD was like a safety thing for me. It was mm. about keeping myself safe, even if actually the actual effect of it was to make me feel profoundly unsafe. And control. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think what a lot of a lot of stuff comes down to is mm. like that that sense of control because everything else feels a little bit out of control. So what's the one thing that I can yeah. therefore have control over is that. When you uh first started running yes. and I and I do remember hearing about your first ever run in your Converse in your baggy <laughs> t shirt, what was the motivation to get out and do that, that first run? Well, it was just that I, you know, I had to accept that maybe the experts were right. You know, I tried every, I was like, I really didn't want to be the person who was like, look, if you want to help your mental health, you know, eat well, stop drinking. I was like, no, 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 that sounds very boring to me. I'm going to find the exact right combination of alcohol and drugs that's going to improve my mental health. And eventually I had to concede that the experts probably knew what they were talking about. So it was really just a desperation to literally run away from my demons. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I had like converse with a whole, I didn't have any like trainers. I was wearing like my, my dad, my dad, that's Freudian, my <laughs> husband's uh, tracksuit bums and a Star Wars t-shirt. And I had like, I was like, I need, I'm going to need water. I'm going to need water. But I didn't have anything, like I didn't have a water bottle. So I had to go out with like my daughter's Tommy Tippy <laughs> sippy cup. Which is my favourite bit. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, you know, whatever. It, and I, I saw that it was, you know, for that 20 minutes I was just trying to stay alive but you did it I did it and from that 20 minute run yeah you went on to, to the do... Olympics to the Olympics <laughs> I went on to the Olympics Alice and um, I've now got five gold medals <laughs> and I'm looking forward to Tokyo next year <laughs> you... if I can do it anyone can that's a joke and there we end no I'm joking yeah. um no so you went on to well, I'd actually like you to tell the story about how you then went on to sign up for your first marathon because I think for anyone, me included, the marathon is terrifying. Have you done a marathon? I've never done a marathon. So lazy, Alice. I, I That's know. what everyone says about you, isn't it? I did a half and that for me was like terrifying itself. I mean, yeah, it was it was tough. So what was it that motivated you? What, like, At what point did you go from that 20-minute run where you were like, oh my God, I think I'm dying to getting up and saying, I'm going to do a marathon? <laughs> um, the Royals, yes. actually. So I got invited to the launch of Heads Together. So it was about three years ago. And um, 
I was introduced to the Duchess of Cambridge and she was telling me that Heads Together was going to be the official charity of the London Marathon 2017. And I said to her, are you going to do the marathon? And she said, oh, no, 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 you know, security and all of that, Um, because it's hard to secure Mm. Mm 26.2 miles. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I can do a marathon, anyone can do a marathon. And I was like, I don't know why I just said that. Like, I, I have never done a marathon. I've, I've eaten a marathon, but that's about it. <laughs> and then this guy from Heads Together turned around and was like, are you going to do the marathon? Do you want to do the marathon? And then she, and then Catherine, the Duchess of Cambridge, she says, are you going to do the marathon? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to do the marathon. Aww. So I literally went from like, and then I had this summer where I just drank and ate all the food. I was like in denial. And my husband was like, you, I think you're going to have to start training. And then I, I literally went in about six months from, I couldn't run for a bus. I couldn't run for a bus, but I got to this stage where I was like, I'm so sick of thinking about what I can't do because I spent my whole life, like I'm not sporty. Mm. Um, Well, I am sporty now, I say, but I'm not, you know, at school, I couldn't get onto the netball A team. I couldn't do a handstand, all of that stuff. And I was like, what can I do? I thought exercise wasn't for me because I'm a larger lady. So I'm like a size 18 to 20. And I realised that what I could do was... I could download a 5K plan and then I could download a 10K mm. and then I could learn, download the half marathon. And then before I knew it, I was crossing the finish line of the London Marathon 2017 mm. and I loved it, loved mm. every moment of it. And I realised that exercise wasn't just for like elites and people, mm. you know, the, the thing for me was that what had changed in my mind was that, you know, I think especially in Britain, we have this kind of instilled in us from school that if we're not brilliant at sport, we shouldn't do it at all, mm. which is like saying to someone, well, you don't have a Michelin star, you can't cook dinner. Mm. Do you know what I mean? For me at home. And it's a great analogy. You know, like I realised in that training that, you know, having thought that people would laugh at me if I did exercise, I realised everyone's in their own head. Mm. No one's looking at me. Mm-hmm. No one's looking at anyone other than themselves. Mm. But I realised for me, exercise for so long had been about the losses, like losing weight, losing inches, it had been about punishment. Mm. And when exercise started to be about the gains, so like the clarity it gave me, the being able to run further distance, longer distances, I realised I really loved it, you know, and I exercised, I was exercising for my head, the results on the rest of the body were sort of like, didn't really matter. And you said in your book that you actually believe running saved your life. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I remember each week my body would do a little bit more than I thought it could do the week before and then at a certain stage I got I remember running along a canal and it was like freezing you know horrible weather and I got to about mile 11 and I felt high I felt high and I was like I did that myself Mm. I didn't have to go to a pub I didn't have to eat any sugar I didn't have to I didn't have to call a drug dealer you know getting getting really honest here Alice you know this was my life and I I was presented with another way and it was like you can you know when I finished when I crossed the line it was like you can carry on living as you have been doing or you can you can try this other way and for a little bit I went back to how I was Mm. and then it very quickly I crashed and burned and so quite soon after my first marathon I Mm. went to rehab (laughs) I didn't I didn't actually know that yeah that's not in the book no no can you talk to me about that? So, yeah, because when you finish the book, you're sort of on this huge high. You finish the marathon, yeah, and you really, as, as you said earlier, you said you were absolutely elated and you yeah. loved every moment of it. Yeah. So, was that sort of like 
a bit of a cliff top? Did you come to the end of that and think, oh God, what next? And then that that emptiness maybe? I think I just kind of slightly spiralled without that. I don't know. It's a bit giddy, isn't it? Um, and and I'd had this kind of big stuff, like I'd done the interview with Prince Harry and on the face of it, life was going really well, but I knew the game was up. Like I could not carry on living like I was mm. living. Like I would like go and do a 10 mile run and then I'd be like, let's go to the pub, you know, let's get a babysitter in. And my husband would be like, you can't have a pint for each mile you've run. Mm. Or I'd be like, oh, contract. You know, <laughs> I don't know how I didn't die. That's the truth. Mm. So, And was that because you were still just so scared or was it yeah, a lot of I just, stuff? It was all I just, it was the only coping mechanism I'd ever learn really you know and I think it's very common in Britain it's like mm. I'll get to the end of a stressful day I'll have a drink like mm. it's the only thing we're ever taught like our parents are like oh I'll have a drink and I you know so that's all I ever learned and mm. I took to it like a duck to water like I loved drinking mm. but it it stopped serving me I mean everyone stopped serving me <laughs> I was drinking in my back garden by myself towards the end Alice I wasn't like a like I thought an alcoholic was like a tramp on a bench. Yeah. You know? I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink during the day. I was very controlled with my drinking. Mm. You know, I was like, only when my daughter's gone to bed and then I won't drink spirits or wine because I couldn't handle it anymore. I was just like, get the volume. So I'd like, just drink, I was just drinking like pints of beer because I could drink more and more and get mm. more of a hit out of it. So it didn't have the sort of hallmarks of obvious alcoholism, but I, I learned... <laughs> Very quickly in rehab, a friend of mine actually took me to a re- uh, like an outpatient rehab. So I, I didn't, it was loads of misconceptions I had about mm. all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was August 2017. Yeah, and I haven't had a drink since. What would you attribute to that? Do you think you've you've now got coping mechanisms in place? Do you feel like you've got a better support network? I, I really kind of like, I think the marathon running, like it really got me into like looking into myself and looking, not in a kind of like, in, you know, looking after myself. I, uh, you know, rehab really helped. I go to 12 step meetings, mm. which is amazing. Like, mm. and again, it's that fellowship. And I realised it's the fellowship I was looking for with mental health mates. Mm. And in a way it was there all along, you know, like obviously mental health mates is a, a broader thing, but mm. like AA, NA, all of those yeah. things. So I, I do those. And um, I go to therapy still every week. All mm. of these things that I would have thought were so indulgent 15 years ago. Yeah. And I'm like, no, they're not indulgent because what they do is they actually free me up so I'm more available for the people that need me. Mm. I think that's incredible. After your first marathon, <laughs> you then went to complete not just the one. One wasn't enough for you. You went on to do another. That's actually when I first became aware of you when you teamed up with Jada to run the London Marathon in your underwear. Yeah, well, I mean, why not? <laughs> you know, that's what the elites do. They basically wear underwear. I was like, why can't I as a size 18 woman? <laughs> what was it that prompted you to do this? Well, I don't know because I could, didn't have the excuse of being drunk anymore. <laughs> You know, I was so, but Jada, I met Jada shortly after uh, doing that first marathon and she's a plus size model. I hate that phrase, plus size. I mean, she's just beautiful, she's, right? Yeah, she's great. And um, she couldn't believe that like women like us were allowed to do marathons. Like she was like, what? They let us? I'm like, yes. They, And she was like, will you do one with me? And I was like, uh, she's quite, you know, lovable Jada. I was like, okay. We got a place for London Marathon 2018 and um. We were training and it was the February... So the London Marathon's in April. So it was the February of 2018 and it was bitterly cold. And we were like... We were running along doing like a training run uh, like along the river in London and 
uh, we were talking about it and we were like, why don't we just like go the whole hog and just do it in our underwear? Mm-hmm. I find that sports gear is actually really flattering. It kind of sucks you in mm-hmm. and, and holds you in all the right places. Mm-hmm. And I was like sick of not seeing the textures of bodies. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so sick of the fakeness. Like everything's filtered. So we all look like Japanese manga versions of ourselves. And I was like, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to have to look down at my body and go, oh my God, this is awful. It's not, it's real. You know, and so that was where the idea came from. Yeah, so we ran we ran London Marathon in our underwear. It was so fun. And it was incredible. And there's really something in that and I and I absolutely love what you've just said because that was absolutely me. I, I thought that everyone that exercised had to be super lean and just fit. And I think what you did was show that it's so important to see all different types of bodies exercising mm. because, like you said before, you don't need to be good at exercise to do it. You just need to do whatever feels best well, for you. Well, it's not an elite club. No. You know? and, 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 you know, for some people, it's about being the fastest and the mm. strongest, but it's not for me. For no. me, it's about being the happiest I can be at any given moment. Like, I'm not running massively long distances at the moment. Like, I'll run, like, 5K three times a week. It's really important. I'm running with my friend Emma, who has breast cancer and uh, we go out three times a week and we walk jog around our local commons and you know I'm really fascinated with meeting people that are kind of proving the kind of traditional narratives of the female body kind of wrong Mm. so next week Jada and I are doing the Vitality London 10k and we've got nearly a thousand women signed up to do it with us in their underwear and we've got women of all different shapes and sizes I've seen this and body experiences so we've got people like Deborah James who has terminal bowel cancer um, she's the bowel babe isn't she the, yeah so she's it's the amazing. you me and the big C podcast girls are doing oh, it we've got wow. people like Nimco Ali who had FGM and who campaigns against that mm. so it's all lived experiences and it's basically reclaiming our bodies and going our bodies are not just here to look sexy for you do you know what I mean Mm. they're here to do incredible things like deal with cancer battle addiction give birth all Mm. of those things Mm. you know and I think there's a real movement of people being sick to death of having to look a certain way for some ridiculous ideal that doesn't even exist anymore Mm. you've now got a daughter she's six Mm. What are some of the lessons that you are going to pass on to her having gone through all of the experiences that you have gone through? I mean, basically, do as I say, not as I do. I think if my daughter is as a teenth badly as behaved as I was growing up, she is on a leash until she's 43. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Like, she'll be her own person. I just hope that she can... Uh, whatever happens, she feels is able to talk about the stuff in her head as she would like yeah. a tummy ache or something yeah. with me. And, um, you know, I think the book, you got this, is, is very much like for her. I mean, it's dedicated to her. Mm. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit old for her. <laughs> she, but um, I just want her to be her and not try and edit herself. Like, not just online, like not just about filtering, but like mm. in real life, mm. like... You know, people always talk about being feeling less than. Mm. I often felt like too much, mm. you know, and we're not we're not too much or not enough. Mm. You know, we're like we are just as we are supposed to be. Like, mm. you, you know, some people are bedside lamps, some people are floodlights, you know, and they both of those things like serve really important roles. Of course. But don't try and like change mm. your wattage, you know? Oh, like I love that. I mean I think that's the most important thing. Like the most okay, this is the heart of this book and um, what I'd say to my daughter is the most powerful thing she can be when she grows up is herself. Mm. 
that's something that I keep trying to remind myself of absolutely every day <laughs> yeah, right no, now. Yeah, I'm still at 38. Like, I know, uh, and it is. It has to be a daily mantra. It's mm. not something, like, I think there's this misconception that suddenly you flick the switch on of body positivity and you're like, I'm great, I love myself. And actually, oh, no. it's it's so hard and it's a daily practice. I'm totally with you, Alice. And I, like, people always say to me, I wish I had your confidence because I'm, like, posting pictures of my cellulite and stuff online. And I, what I say to them is I don't have confidence. Like, I'm the same as everyone else. Mm. Like, there's the hateful thoughts come in my head but what I do have is a desire to not spend any more of my energy and time hating on myself I'm just not going to do it Mm. I don't want to feel obligated to find a part of my body that I don't like Mm. like my body keeps me alive we're all miraculous Mm. right now you know our bodies are doing incredible things to keep us alive and I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to trash it and it does it takes up so much energy if you allow it to just think of what we could be doing if Mm. we weren't like worrying about the shape of our thighs or I whatever. Like agree we, more. Like, Brexit would be sorted. <laughs> it would never have happened in the first place. Oh, big, big statement but there. But you know what I mean? <laughs> like, no, enough of this. <laughs> enough of this. We have to wrap up, but I oh, have what? two, I know, two <laughs> final questions. I, I Honestly, I could stay and chat here to you forever. Um, my first question, and I ask this to everyone at the end of the podcast, is... What does strength look like to you? Oh, you, Alice. (laughs) Strength looks like lots of different things. Strength Mm -hmm. sometimes looks like someone just being able to get out of bed in the Mm -hmm. morning. I love that. And my final question, who in your life demonstrates strength the most? Bloody hell. Um, Me. (gasps) Oh, we haven't had that yet. And I'm so proud of you for saying that. That's incredible. Me. Yeah, own it. <laughs> I do, and I'm, I'm, I've spent so long trash talking myself, Alice. So long doing myself down, and so I said, but like, it's not arrogant to love yourself mm. or to like yourself, mm. and it should not be a radical act. Mm. Celebrate your achievements. Celebrate you because you're bloody awesome. I couldn't feel more inspired right now. I cannot thank you enough for what has been the most. Yeah, inspiring and... Oh, thanks for giving me just a moment to sit down and breathe as well. <laughs> and have an eclair. What more could you want? Know, let's go more eclairs. <laughs> let's have more eclairs. Thank you so much, Bryony. It's been wonderful. And um, yeah, your book is out now. Thank so, you, Alice. Yeah, thank you. We all know how much powerful quotes can inspire us. So I've selected some of my favourite quotes from women who've inspired me to be your daily mantra through to the next episode. This week's quote comes from our golden girl, heptathlete Jessica Ennis. She said, the only one who can tell you you can't win is you and you don't have to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in to Give Me Strength. Please do join us next week for more incredible guests. In the meantime, I would love it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast. And don't forget to subscribe if you want to be the first to listen to our brand new episode every Wednesday. 